Okay, <clears throat> welcome everyone to this edition of Surety Today. My name is Mike Stover and I'm a partner in the Surety Law Group here at Wright Constable Skeen in Baltimore, Maryland. As you know, Surety Today is designed to keep the busy claims professional up to date and informed on surety industry issues. Wherever you are, if you have a phone, you can call in. If you miss the presentation, you can listen to a recording at three different locations. Of course, our website at wcslaw.com as a podcast at uh, podbean.com, Surety Today, and on our uh, microsite at suretytoday.net. Uh, you can also read a transcript of the presentation uh, on the WCS website or the Surety Today microsite. The program is offered uh, only to in-house claims professionals, and we appreciate your support and ask that you pass along our contact information to any colleagues in the industry who you think may be interested in calling in. Uh, we also ask that you like and or share our Surety Today notices and posts on LinkedIn and Twitter. If you have any suggestions for topics or improvements, uh, please let us know. If you have any complaints, well, you can just keep those to yourself. No, I'm kidding. If you have any complaints, pass those on too. If you have any technical issues during the call, please contact Ms. Jeannie Hyatt at jhyatt, H-Y-A-T-T, at wcslaw.com. We've muted the line during the presentation to avoid any background noise, and we'll unmute the line at the end for any questions. Now, today we are uh, going to talk about liquidated damages. There are few industries for which the saying, time is money, is more appropriate than in the construction industry. Timing is typically highly sensitive because if the project is not delivered on time, the owner could be facing lost opportunities, lost profits, lender carrying charges and fees, extended general conditions, architect and consultant fees, etc. Similarly, when uh, projects are delayed, general contractors carry the financial burden of maintaining field and home office personnel, and subcontractors likewise are impacted. There's a ripple effect that radiates out from the cause of the delay throughout the entire project. Liquidated damages as a concept was created as a way to compensate a party for delay in circumstances where it may be difficult or even impossible to quantify the actual damages caused by the delay. It seems like every time you turn around, there's some owner or general contractor that's threatening the surety with liquidated damages, and the surety's trying to get a handle on the project and, and, and cognizant of the fact that the LD clock is ticking in the background. Sometimes the LDs can be negotiated away as part of a takeover, a tender, or buyout, but that's not always the case. Uh, in one case, in Siemens Westinghouse Power Corporation versus Dick Corporation out of the uh, Southern District of New York, the liquidated damage provision was $85,000 per day, and the surety was held liable with its principal for $15 million in liquidated damages. In the, uh, the case of the United States Fidelity and Guarantee Company versus Brass Petro Oil Services, the trial court awarded $62 million in liquidated damages against the sureties. Fortunately, on appeal, that award was later vacated by the Second Circuit. So liquidated damages can be uh, substantial, and every surety should have a good understanding of the nature and defenses to such claims. Accordingly, today we're going to explore the um, we're going to explore what liquidated damages are, the history of such clauses, the surety's exposure to such damages, and potential defenses to liquidated damages. So without further ado, let's get started. Liquidated damages are generally defined 
as a specific sum of money expressly stipulated by the parties to a contract in advance as the amount of damages to be recovered by one party for a breach of the agreement by the other. In a typical construction contract, a liquidated damage provision will establish a daily rate to be paid by the delaying party for each day beyond the specified completion date that the project is late. The daily rate for the delay is designed to represent the, an estimate of the actual damages that will be suffered each day the obligee is denied beneficial use of the project. It typically includes some factor of consequential damages, such as lost profits and revenues, extended conditions, additional fees that might be incurred, etc. As I noted, uh, such liquidated damage provisions are supposed to be used in circumstances where actual damages resulting from the delay are difficult or impossible to anticipate, and they are designed to represent the party's reasonable estimate of such damages so that the parties can avoid efforts to attempt to prove such damages in the event of a subsequent delay. So let's look at it historically, uh, how liquidated damages were treated. Historically, under the common law, penalties and forfeitures were not favored by the courts. Because liquidated damage clauses fix an amount of damages in advance, courts often viewed such clauses as penalties or forfeitures and refused to enforce them. Later, courts began to realize that in certain circumstances, when actual loss could not be easily calculated or proven, a liquidated damage clause was a valid alternative. Indeed, the courts began to note that liquidated damage clauses can serve a useful purpose when it would be difficult to prove the amount of loss with a degree of certainty required by the law because such clauses promote efficiency by increasing certainty and by decreasing risk, proof problems, and litigation costs. Because liquidated damage clauses constitute a contractual modification of the common law, courts addressing such clauses tended to follow the maxim that a clause in derogation of the common law must be strictly and narrowly construed. Balanced against that approach over time was the recognition that the principles of freedom of contract should apply and be enforced and the parties to a contract should be free to establish the measure of damages resulting from a breach of that contract. The United States Supreme Court commenting on liquidated damage clauses in the case of U.S. versus Bethlehem Steel observed, quote, the courts at one time seemed to be quite strong in their views and would scarcely admit that there ever was a valid contract providing for liquidated damages. Their tendency was to construe the language as a penalty so that nothing but the actual damages sustained by the party aggrieved could be recovered. Subsequently, the courts became more tolerant of such provisions and have now become strongly inclined to allow parties to make their own contracts and to carry out their intentions, even when it would result in the recovery of an amount stated as liquidated damages upon proof of the violation of the contract, unquote. More recently, the Supreme Court of Minnesota observed, the modern trend is to look with candor, if not with favor, upon a contract provision for liquidated damages when entered into deliberately between the parties who have equality of opportunity for understanding and insisting upon their rights, since an amicable adjustment in advance of difficult issues saves the time of courts, juries, parties, and witnesses and reduce the delay, uncertainty, and expense of litigation. Courts embracing the freedom of contract approach reason that liquidated damage clauses should be enforced because the issue of actual damages to be sustained due to delay 
due to delay is better left in the hands of the parties who are best able to estimate such damages and because contractors are presumed to have taken such clauses into consideration in pricing the contracts they accept. As the Supreme Court stated, the parties to a contract with full understanding of the results of delay and before the differences of interested views had arisen between them were much more competent to justly determine what the amount of damages would be. In the construction context, a number of courts have held that damages resulting from the late completion of a construction project, by their nature, generally are difficult to ascertain. This presumption is particularly strong in public contracting, where courts generally acknowledge that difficulty inherent in calculating the damage to the public caused when such projects are delayed. Thus, <clears throat> the law of um, the loss of use of a public building, for example, for a period of time, traffic delays caused by road work or uh, loss of educational services due to the delay in school construction are commonly deemed sufficiently intangible and incalculable to satisfy the use of liquidated damages. Given the past from which liquidated damage clauses have arisen, when enforcement of a liquidated damage clause is at issue, the critical question even today still remains is the amount of the stipulated damage an illegal penalty designed to punish rather than compensate? As a general rule, a liquidated damage clause will be deemed to be an unenforceable penalty if it is proven that there was an intent to deter or punish a contractor for breaching the contract or the stipulated amount was unreasonable in relation to foreseeable actual damages at the time of contract. Thus, some courts hold that for a liquidated damage clause to be valid, the amount fixed as damages must be a reasonable forecast for the harm caused by the breach, and the harm that is caused by the breach must be of a kind difficult to accurately estimate. So let's look at the surety's exposure to liquidated damages. Liquidated damage clauses are commonplace in most construction contracts and are even part of the Uniform Commercial Code. Take a look at the UCC Section 2-718 uh, for the... Uh, the, the UCC's version of liquidated damages. The AIA A312 performance bond, 2010 version, and it was also in the 2000, or the 1984 version, provides for uh, recovery of liquidated damages against the surety in certain circumstances in section 7.3 of that bond. There's a similar provision in the uh, EJCDC C610 performance bond, the uh, 2013 version at section 7.3. Most courts have held that sureties are responsible for liquidated damages, both directly and indirectly. Directly, when the LDs are assessed against a defaulted principal or the surety through a takeover agreement, and indirectly, where the LDs were assessed against a general contractor by an owner and were then passed down by the general contractor to the bonded subcontractor. But courts in at least two jurisdictions have declined to hold the surety responsible for liquidated damages unless the bond clearly identifies such liability. So uh, Pennsylvania is one of, those, one of those jurisdictions. Under Pennsylvania law, a bond given pursuant to a contract incorporated uh, in the bond will, will be construed in light of the terms of the contract and the attendant circumstances, but the obligation of a bond cannot be extended beyond the plain import of the words used. In Downington Area School District versus uh, International Fidelity, uh, a school district contracted to have an elementary school built. The contract provided that the bonded principal would be liable for liquidated damages for delay and other consequential losses. 
When the principal stopped work on the project, the school district formally declared it to be in default and sought delay damage, liquidated damage, attorney fees from the surety. The court held that because the performance bond did not specifically obligate the insurance company, the surety, uh, to cover all claims arising under the construction contract, coverage was limited to the precise terms of the bond. Specifically, the school district could only recover the cost of completion of the project. The court noted that its decision was not affected by the clause incorporating the terms of the contract into the performance bond because under Pennsylvania law, such a clause only sets out the condition of the surety's liability rather than the scope of that liability. And there's a similar approach was uh, also taken in a Louisiana court in the case of uh, Jefferson Parish Consolidated Garbage District Number 1 versus Waste Management of Louisiana. Thus, as a threshold matter, when a surety is addressing a claim for liquidated damages, the surety should read the bond and check applicable law, including the jurisdiction's interpretation of the effect of incorporation by reference of the underlying contract into the bond. So let's look at some procedural aspects of liquidated damages. The question of whether a liquidated damage clause will be enforced or rejected as a penalty is a question of law for the court to decide. In addition, to deter- in addition, the determination of whether a particular clause in a contract is to be construed as providing for liquidated damages or as a penalty depends on the facts and circumstances in each case. Such determinations are typically well suited for summary judgment or a motion to dismiss. The burden of proof as to the assessment of liquidated damages is initially on the party seeking the damages. They must show that the contract was not completed by the agreed-upon completion date and that liquidated damages are properly due and owing. Once the initial burden of proof is met, the burden then shifts to the party opposing liquidated damages to show that the liquidated damages are unreasonable, that the provision is an unenforceable penalty, or some other defense. In evaluating the reasonableness of a liquidated damage provision, the question arises as to what time period to make that assessment. At the time of the contract, at the time of the breach, or both. And it turns out there's a split uh, among the jurisdictions on this issue. A slim majority of jurisdictions appear to favor what's called a single approach, which tests the validity of the clause only as of the time of contract. That view gives deference to the bargain struck by the parties. Competing with that approach is an almost, in an almost equal number of jurisdictions is the view that a second look as of the time of the breach to determine if the sum stipulated as liquidated damages is unreasonably and grossly disproportionate to the real damages from a breach. The surety will need to determine the approach taken in the applicable jurisdiction to address this issue. The more popular view is that the reasonableness of a liquidated damage clause should be determined as of the time the contract was executed, not with the benefit of hindsight. This view, sometimes referred to as the prospective or single-look approach, requires only that the amount specified be a reasonable forecast or estimate of the damages expected or likely to flow from a breach of the contract. That is, that the appropriate determinant is whether the clause is reasonable compared to the anticipated rather than the actual damages. As one court taking this position said, the parties are not required to make the best estimation of damages, just one that is reasonable. It is immaterial that the actual damages suffered are higher or lower than the amount specified in the clause. So again, there's a split in the jurisdictions there, and you're going to have to figure out what uh, court you're in and what that jurisdiction is doing with respect to determining 
when you you, you test the uh, reasonableness of the clause. So let's look at uh, this issue of liquidated damages versus actual damages. The issue of actual damages as related to liquidated damage provisions arises in many forms. Uh, as we just talked about it, it, it can be the issue of whether actual damages are, are compared to the estimate to begin with. That's one way they come up. In most jurisdictions, if the contract has a liquidated damage provision, the damage party will be precluded from recovering actual damages for delay and will be limited to the stipulated liquidated damage amount. This is true regardless of whether the ultimate actual damages were more than the liquidated damage amount. If the actual damages are less than the liquidated damage amount, the issue will become uh, by how much and whether such difference is grossly excessive or unreasonable if you're in a jurisdiction that looks to that. However, liquidated damages can be the measure of recovery uh, even when there are no actual damages. In the Bethlehem Steel case I mentioned earlier, the Supreme Court held uh, upheld rather the liquidated damage provision even though there were no damages. In that case, the contract required the contractor to provide parts for weapons for the federal government. The contractor failed to meet the delivery deadline. However, during performance of the work, the war for which the weapons were needed ended and there was no longer any need for the weapons. Clearly, the government would have had a hard time quantifying damages in that scenario, but the court held that the liquidated damage provision applied in such circumstance as it was the party's bargain. It is generally recognized that the liquidated damage provision is a substitute for actual damages and that the provision constitutes the damage party's exclusive remedy for delay caused by events within the scope of the provision. There are some jurisdictions, however, where the courts have allowed recovery of actual damages for delays and liquidated damages for delays at the same time. Conceptually, this result makes no sense given the express purpose of a liquidated damage clause. In the circumstance where a general contractor is assessed liquidated damages by the owner and it flows those damages down to the responsible subcontractor and at the same time also seeks recovery of the general contractor's delayed damages against that same subcontractor, um, and those actual, in that case, actual liquidated and the liquidated damages may be properly recoverable. But in the absence of that scenario, allowing actual damages for delay and liquidated damages just is, is wrong, and most courts will not allow that. In one unusual case from um, from uh, New York Appellate Court, uh, there really wasn't uh, any any searching analysis or citation to case law, and the opinion was later. Uh, uh, refused to be followed by another New York appellate court, uh, but in that case, they, the court allowed the recovery of actual damages and liquidated damages against the surety. In that case, the county entered into a contract with the principal to construct an addition to the county jail. Subsequently, the county declared the principal to be in, to be in default and demanded that the surety complete the work pursuant to the performance bond. The county and the surety entered into a takeover agreement and the surety completed the work approximately a year and a half uh, after the deadline established by the original contract. The county paid the surety $585,000 for completion of the work but retained $270,000 as compensation for expenses of delay and completion, the cost of correcting the principal's defective work, and liquidated damages in the amount of $100 per day plus attorney's fees. The surety sued the county for breach of contract seeking the unpaid contract balance of $270,000. The county responded with a, with a counterclaim seeking an additional 301000 in lost revenues, which it attributed to the county's inability as a result of the delay 
to house federal prisoners in the new jail. The surety moved for partial summary judgment dismissing the counterclaim on the ground that liquidated damages were the county's sole remedy. The trial court granted the motion. The appellate court reversed. The court acknowledged that generally, where an owner and contractor have agreed that the owner will receive liquidated damages because of the contractor's delay in completing the project, that provision will be enforced as the owner's exclusive remedy, thus precluding any claim for the owner for actual damages. However, the court held that liquidated damages were not the county's exclusive remedy in this case and that the county may recover lost income and and other actual damages stemming from the surety's delay in completing the project. The court explained that the county's counterclaim against the bonding company arises out of the performance bond, not the original contract. Under the terms of the bond, the court believed that the surety assumed the contractual obligations agreed to by its principal, but also assumed obligations of its own, including the obligation to complete the contract promptly and, in the event of a breach, to pay additional legal, design, professional, and delay costs resulting from the principal's default and resulting from the actions or failure to act of the surety. The court concluded that the county's claim for actual damages was impliedly reserved by the language of the takeover agreement. The court clearly misinterpreted the language of the bond. The provision relied on by the court was for the surety to promptly make a choice under the performance bond options, and the damages for delay applied if the bond was breached. There was no discussion in the opinion as to whether the surety breached the bond or unreasonably delayed in completing the work or anything like that. So while the general rule is that liquidated damages and actual damages are mutually exclusive, it's important to keep in mind that actual damages may still be recovered for breaches other than those contemplated by the liquidated damage provision. For example, it would be proper for an obligee to recover liquidated damages and damages to repair defective work, for example. This is because an award of liquidated damages typically precludes only the recovery of actual damages for the delayed performance. Let's take a look at uh, substantial completion. Most construction contracts expressly state the date or circumstances which will end the assessment of liquidated damages. In most jurisdictions, courts will not impose liquidated damages for delay after the date of substantial completion unless the contract provides otherwise. Thus, a finding of substantial completion in the case or on the project typically will toll the assessment of liquidated damages. And again, you've got to read, your, you got to read the MLI contract and the bond uh, in order to see if that will hold true in any particular case. All right, so, so we've discussed sort of uh, liquidated damages in general, the historical perspective and, and practical procedural perspectives. So now let's take a look at the um, defenses to liquidated damages. The first, of course, has to be that you're seeking to find that the clause is a penalty. Owing in part to the still lingering mistrust of stipulated damage clauses, there are seemingly innumerable ways to attack a liquidated damage clause as a penalty. Accordingly, the first line of defense for any surety is to evaluate whether the clause is an unenforceable penalty. Commentators have noted that the case is nullifying liquidated damages as penalties almost without exception rely upon a substantive substantive assessment of whether the liquidated damage amounts are a reasonable approximation of actual damages. Thus, exploring the method of how the obligee determined the liquidated damage amount can be critical in determining whether the clause will be enforceable. Was the daily rate the same number the obligee always uses regardless of the nature of the project? That would be a penalty. 
for the damage amount must be a fair and reasonable estimate of probable damages on the specific project. Was the daily rate determined by coming up with a number that would scare the contractor or spur the contractor into completing on time? That's a penalty. Was there no effort at all to estimate the damages and just a random daily rate was picked? That's a penalty. Aside from the method of determining the amount of liquidated damages, some courts hold that where the amount is grossly in excess of actual damages, the clause will be a penalty. Where the damage sum is unreasonably large, such as in one case where the amount was one-third of the total contract price, such amount was a penalty. In Virginia and New York, a liquidated damage clause will be deemed a penalty if the actual damages resulting from delay are, in fact, susceptible of definite measurement. Further, liquidated damages will not be allowed where the contractual language and attendant circumstances show that the contract also provides for the full recovery of actual damages because liquidated damages and actual damages are mutually exclusive. When you look into the case law on liquidated damages, you'll see that the cases are all over the map and again probably reveal the natural bias of the particular court in favor of or against such clauses. For example, in one case, the court upheld a $43,000 per day liquidated damage clause for delay in completing an odor reduction system for a wastewater treatment plant. Something just doesn't smell right there. Of course, with all of these defenses I'm discussing, the age-old adage, be careful because you may get what you wish for, applies. If you raise a successful defense and the liquidated damage clause is deemed unenforceable as a penalty, the obligee will then be able to pursue its actual damages. Let's look at another defense, and that's um, abandonment. Recently, I've had a run of cases where the principal just closes doors. In several instances, it was the result of the bank sweeping all the operating funds out of the principal's and indemnitor's accounts. In those cases, the principal has simply abandoned the bonded projects. With respect to enforcement of liquidated damage clauses, abandonment could actually be a good thing, depending on the jurisdiction you're in. In some cases, courts have held that where the contractor completely abandons the project, the liquidated damage clause is not enforceable. In those cases, the courts have found that such provisions did not contemplate total abandonment. Similarly, one commentator observed that a liquidated damage provision must be construed so as to not go on operating forever, as it would then, in fact, operate as a penalty. Upon abandonment, other courts have refused to enforce liquidated damage clauses because, one, because once the contractor has left the project, it no longer has control over the completion of the work. However, other courts have held that when a contractor has abandoned a project, operation of a per diem liquidated damage provision is limited to the time reasonably necessary for the plaintiff to procure completion of the agreed performance by a substitute contractor or by the plaintiff's own efforts. If you're faced with an abandonment situation on a project with liquidated damages, you should determine if the applicable jurisdiction alters enforcement of the clause. The next defense is excusable delays. Excusable delay is a delay to the critical path outside of the control of both of the contracted parties. The parties share this risk by bearing their respective costs incurred because of such delay, but granting each other time extensions to cover the extended duration resulting from that excusable delay. In other words, one receives time but not money for excusable delays. A finding of excusable delay precludes the obligee from assessing liquidated damages for that period of the delay. The next is uh, defense is where the obligee has, caused the, has, has, has been the cause of the delays. Generally, a liquidated damage clause is not enforceable if the delay is due to the fault of the party claiming the benefit of the provision. 
Courts routinely recognize that where one seeking to enforce a provision for liquidated damages is responsible for the failure of performance or has contributed in part to it, the provision will not be enforced. And there's a number of cases uh, that we cite for that proposition. Thus, because the obligee's actions prevented the principal from performing the contract by the original completion date, the obligee will be barred from recovering liquidated damages for the time period in which it delayed performance of the contract. Another defense is concurrent delays, where the obligee is responsible for concurrent delay at the same time that the principal was causing delay, the delays will offset each other and the obligee will not be entitled to assert liquidated damages. The rule is well settled that in cases where the delays have been caused by both parties of the contract and completion of the contract has thereby been extended beyond the time fixed, the obligation for liquidated damages is annulled and the courts will not attempt to approach such de- or apportion such delays between the parties and hold the contractor liable in damages for any portion of the delay. The final delay, uh, the final defense, rather, to liquidated damages we'll look at is uh, waiver and estoppel. The obligee may waive its right to enforce the liquidated damage provision if it knowingly and voluntarily either expressly waives the right or through its actions and conduct demonstrates either an intent to relinquish its right to liquidated damages and or its conduct was inconsistent with an intention to enforce that right. The waiver may result from a variety of circumstances, such as an obligee's encouragement of continued performance after after, uh, expiration of the contract time without objection and without invoking liquidated damages, direction to the contractor to perform extra work after the scheduled completion date, failure to place the contractor in default, or failure to claim entitlement to liquidated damages prior to making final payment. In some cases, the waiver could be expressed as where the contract provides that the making of final payment waives any claims of the obligee, which can then be argued to include liquidated damages. So in conclusion, sureties frequently face liquidated damage claims, and typically the claim is made as an offset to the contract balance by the obligee as opposed to the surety actually writing a check. The best approach is to attempt to bargain away or reduce the liquidated damages at the time the surety is negotiating its performance and deciding whether to take over, tender, buyout, etc. If agreement cannot be reached with the obligee, as we discussed, there are a number of defenses that can be explored. So let me uh, close out here real quick. Okay, before I open up the line for any questions, I wanted to let everyone know that the next edition of Surety Today uh, will be on Monday, September 10th at 1230 Eastern Time, and I will present on the topic of the surety and pay-if-paid, pay-when-paid clauses. Upcoming events in the surety industry. Atlanta Surety Claims Association lunch meeting will be held on August 16th. Mr. Lynn Heath will be speaking. The Perlman Conference will be held on September 5th through the 7th. The Chicago Surety Claims Association lunch meeting will be on September 13th. The Philadelphia Surety Claims uh, lunch meeting will be on September 19th. Ms. Uh, Sandy Feltus will be speaking there. The 29th Annual Northeast Surety and Fidelity Claims Conference will be held at the Borgata Hotel in Atlantic City, New Jersey. September 26th through the 29th, and uh, we're co-sponsors of that wonderful conference. The National Bond Claim Association will hold its annual meeting in Pinehurst, North Carolina, October 10th through the 12th. Uh, I mentioned this before. We haven't done it. We're going to start doing it. We'll be starting a new service uh, to surety claims handlers called Surety Today Case Notes, where we will, from time to time, discuss a recent case that relates to surety claims handling issues in a short easy-to-read way. Typically, the cases will address issues that relate to past Surety Today presentations. These case notes will be posted on LinkedIn and Twitter, so be sure to connect with or follow us 
And again, thank you for joining me. And let me open up the line to see if we've got any questions. Okay, got any questions? Now's the time. All right, doesn't sound like we've got any questions. Appreciate everybody calling in and uh, look forward to speaking with you next month. Thank you. Thanks, Mike. Thank, Thank you. you.